0: Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs. And this week in the Southern Studio, we've got blood, sweat, and tears on the turntable. Oh, can somebody clean that up? How good it is. Before we get rolling, I'm going to ask you to please consider supporting the show as a patron. My current cadre of patrons help pay for the new theme music you just heard, and I thank you all. So very much for that. For just five bucks a month, there is a newsletter every week, whether a new show drops or not. That catches you up on music news of the present and the past. Click on the link on the website or point your browser to patreon.com slash how good it is. A couple of people asked me about Jeremiah Coughlin, the guy I mentioned at the end of last show. Jeremiah is a stand-up comic out on the West Coast, and he has two podcasts One is dedicated to a minor league baseball team out there, and of course that show's been on hiatus for a while. So he started another one, which is its own brand of fun. Check out what he has to say about it, and I'll see you again in 38 seconds. Don't do drugs, but if you're going to, get a good story out of it. Fear and Loathing in Tacoma is the newest podcast from comedian Jeremiah Coughlin, where he interviews rock stars, comedians, and generally interesting people about their psychedelic experiences. New episodes every Friday. Check it out on Podcast Republic, iTunes, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Sometimes hilarious, sometimes terrifying, always interesting. This is fear and loathing It is Thanks, Jeremiah. I have some musical trivia for ye this time around. I want you to listen to this piece and tell me what it is. that? Just tell me the significance of that bit of music. Easy one, right? Well, they can't all be crazy hard. I'll tell you a little bit more about it, though, at the end of the show. Today we're looking at And When I Die, one of three singles off of Blood, Sweat & Tears' second album. But if you know anything about this show, well, you know we're going to dial back the clock just a little bit more than you expect. Mm -hmm. And when I'm dead, dead, and gone, there'll be one child born, and a world to carry on, to carry on. The song was written by the criminally underrated Laura Nero in 1966, and that puts her at the tender age of 16 when she composed this song about death and life. And while it's kind of somber in thinking about death, it's also got the positive message that life in some manner will continue on. Alan Merrill, who later played for the Arrows and wrote the song I Love Rock and Roll, was a distant relative of Nero's and told her to trash it, thinking it was uh, kind of morbid. But Merrill also noted that he was 15 at the time he said that to her, and death was distant and very scary for him, so what did he know? In 1989, Scott Simon from NPR asked Laura Nero how such a somber subject came to her for a song. Nero's response was, quote, I think that teenagers are in touch with a very primal truth in life, that there is a folk wisdom in the song that a lot of teenagers have, unquote. Although she was young and new on the music scene, Nero was getting some attention, and the song caught the eye of Peter, Paul, and Mary, who bought it for $5,000 and recorded it on their 1966 album, cleverly titled The Peter, Paul, and Mary Album. And when I die, and when I... There'll be one child born and a world to carry on. There'll be one child born to carry on. far as I can tell it was Nero's first big sale although she herself recorded a few songs around the same time that turned out to be big hits for other artists. Now during that same year of 1966 Nero recorded the song herself among a few others and it was released in 1967 as part of her first album originally titled More Than A New Discovery. That album was reissued in 1969 as the first songs with the same track list but in a different order. So unless you're a collector, it's not worth your while to buy one album if you already have the other. And When I Die was in the middle of side one on more than a new discovery, but it closed out side two and therefore the entire album on the first songs. So while Nero recorded it first, Peter, Paul, and Mary released it first. So with all that in mind, let's move on to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. The band formed in 1967 and were definitely a new thing with their combination of jazz and rock instrumentation, combined with their willingness to perform folk and blues using that combination with just a sousson of psychedelia. Blood, Sweat & Tears essentially laid down the foundation for jazz fusion without actually being part of that genre but after the first album, The Child is Father to the Man, was released, the various members began to manifest some uh, artistic differences that resulted in several of them leaving. Founding members Bobby Columby and Steve Katz began to put together another band with the same name and considered several people to replace original lead singer Al Cooper. Among the people they considered were Alex Chilton, who had recently left the box Tops, Stephen Stills, and, surprise, Laura Nero. Why was Nero even considered? Well, it turns out she was dating the bass player, Jimmy Fielder, and hung out with the band a lot during rehearsals. But the story goes that Judy Collins, who knew that Katz and Columbia were looking for a vocalist, heard David Clayton Thomas performing at a club in New York City and nudged them into seeing him play. The second album, released in December of 1968 and titled simply Blood, Sweat and Tears, had more of a pop sensibility to it than the previous album and also fewer compositions by the band members, and it was an unqualified success. It was so successful, in fact, that the band was invited to play at Woodstock, a fact that most people forget because there's almost nothing recorded from their performance. Blood, Sweat, and Tears went on at 1.30 on Sunday night between Johnny Winter and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but the band's manager, Bennett Glotzer, demanded that they get paid for the appearance immediately, and when that request was denied, Glotzer insisted that the recording equipment be stopped. As a result, there's only a short segment of their first song that made it onto the tapes. At When I Die was the third single off that album, and in case you haven't noticed, it's a sonic departure from Nero's version. It's much longer, including two instrumental breaks, and the slow portion at the start of the song was moved to the end. Instead, we open with a soulful harmonica from Steve Katz. Now, there are two different versions of the song in the sense that there is an album version and a single version. The album version has, as I mentioned, the two instrumental breaks. One features an electric piano, and the other is more horn-prominent, along with the use of temple blocks, which give that segment the sound of a cowboy song. Now, where did that come from, you may ask? And I'm glad you did. Remember I said that the band's lineup changed dramatically after the first album, Dick Halligan played trombone on the first album, but he moved into the keyboard position afterward. However, he arranged the horn section on several songs on the album, including And When I Die. Halligan has said that he was reaching for a bit of a light comedy version of the song, but with an Aaron Copeland kind of feel. Now on the single, the horns and blocks version is cut out, but the other thing they've done for the single is that the pauses between the chorus and the verses is actually shorter on the single version. The single was released long after the album in September of 1969, and just like the two that preceded it, You've Made Be So Very Happy and Spinning Wheel, it's been 13 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, and it topped out at number two, blocked from the top spot by the Beatles' double A single, Come Together and Something. It did, however, reach number one in Canada, and it is worth noting that The Week and When I Die reached number two There were two other Laura Nero compositions in the top ten. Wedding Bell Blues by the Fifth Dimension was at number three, and Three Dog Nights version of Eli's Coming was in the number ten position. covers? Oh, there are plenty of them, especially in the year or two after Blood, Sweat and Tears version first broke. Uh, and a number of genres, too. What you're hearing now is the version from Billy Childs featuring Alison Krause and Jerry Douglas. It was released in uh, 2014. this appears on a hero tribute album from that year Uh, but perhaps the better known of the more recent covers would be this one This is a band called The Heavy, which recorded the song in 2011. This recording was commissioned by the producers of the HBO show True Blood and used in the fourth season finale that year. So far as I know, the only place you can find it is on the show's third soundtrack album. And let me share one more with you, just because it's kind of cool. This next sample you're going to hear is the Student Society in Trondheim, Norway. So it's a bunch of teenagers. They're singing the song Acapella. This is from 2011. They're working from the Blood, Sweat & Tears version, even to the point of maybe imitating David Clayton Thomas' pronunciation in some spots. pretty cool huh and now it's time to answer our trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you to give me the significance of this musical clip. Now, of course, you might recognize the melody as being the bridge to the Beatles song, In My Life. But what you may not realize is is that what you're listening to is the bridge to In My Life. You see, the Beatles recorded this song on October 18th, 1965. But the only thing they didn't have something for was the bridge. Uh, John Lennon knew only that he wanted something Baroque sounding there. And that's pretty much what he asked George Martin to do. So Martin wrote a piano piece inspired by Bach. But he realized that as good as he was, he couldn't play it at the song's tempo. So, he recorded the solo with the tape running at half speed, which, when played back at normal speed, bumped it up to double speed and an octave higher, which made it sound like a harpsichord. means that when the record was released a lot of people mistook it for a harpsichord and in turn the real thing was used a lot more often in recordings by other artists and that my friend is a full lid on another edition of how good it is if you are enjoying the show please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere and now you can support the show over at patreon.com how good it is if you want to get in touch with the show You can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you just might find a few extra bits. Thank you, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we go riding in cars. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. How good it is. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for 4 dollars each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone.